0: Making change is rarely easy, but it doesn't come much harder than battling several centuries of colonization. But as a change maker, what if you could find ways to turn white tools into tools of resistance? Today's Changemaker chat is with Terry Jenke. Terry is a lawyer, but she's not any kind of lawyer. Her legal practice embodies her indigenous identity and culture where she seeks to use the law as a tool to protect and advance Indigenous culture and intellectual property. Terry is well known around Australia for her True Tracks approach that seeks to create a new ethical practice for respecting and valuing Indigenous knowledge and culture. For 20 years, she has worked with major institutions in Australia to develop protocols for how Indigenous knowledge will be valued. Today she shares how she slowly found a place in the law, supported by her parents and mentors and inspired by leaders like Eddie Mabo. This is a particularly profound conversation for non-Indigenous people. Terry very generously shares the power of an Indigenous understanding of culture and knowledge from which we can all learn so much. So let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So, Terry, welcome to Changemaker Chats. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Oh, no, it's my absolute honour to have you here today. So, I wanted to start the conversation by getting you to explain to our audience what kind of changemaker are you? What do you do to make change in the world? Well,
1: I'm a lawyer, but sort of a different kind of lawyer in that (laughs) (laughs) I bring myself into the law that I practice and that's my Indigenous culture, but also my uh, beliefs to empower people. So not a lawyer that goes into the courts and sort of uh, wraps people over the knuckles and gets them into line that way. I do do that, but I have a a philosophy that is about bringing people with you and that journey for uh, empowering Indigenous people that is at the heart of my work. Uh, I want to bring people with me and to understand why there is a need for that and that's how I've done it with advancing
0: Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights. Excellent so a lawyer but not the kind of lawyer that our audience might be familiar with A, a lawyer who is actually able to to fight for justice with bringing your whole self to the law rather than just using it as as a tool of domination. Okay so that's an interesting story, Terry. So tell us why and how you came to be doing this. Like, tell us the long story. Go back. The and long story. Go back. And tell okay. Us. Well, um,
1: I'm Woodathi Yarrakana and Merriam. So I have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage. So that's First Nations. I grew up in the north of Australia. I was born in Cairns and I was a kid in the 1970s and it was uh, a time when Indigenous rights were forming. It was probably a few uh, years after that referendum that gave Indigenous people greater rights and recognition at a Commonwealth level. But it was still, you know, in a state of change and Indigenous people were much more invisible than we are today There was very uh, low recognition of rights, really, and I grew up in a town, Cairns, which was pretty much a regional town, and there was a lot of racism. So as a kid, you know, I'm the middle child of uh, two indigenous uh, people, and they grew up, um, they were fairly young, we went to school, uh, and I was very aware of racism, and the fact that the skin I was in was the wrong skin as uh, a small child. And uh, it really heightened me to, um, you know, just think about the world and the injustices in it. I couldn't explain it like that as a kid, but, you know, you sort of knew that uh, Indigenous people were second-class citizens. And uh, it was, for me, growing up and learning more about that, wanting to change that, because we weren't taught history uh, of uh, the story of colonization in Australia. We were were taught it, sorry, in a way that was uh, um, not telling the true story of indigenous people. And so for me, there was a lot of, uh, for indigenous people, we had a lot of uh, shame. Uh, People didn't recognize our rights. So I wanted to shift that. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I was um, starting to get really empowered and wanting to do something. And you know, there were the marches were starting to happen for Indigenous rights. We were seeing land rights. The um, you know the movement was getting much more recognition. And then I was in high school and I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, uh, but I didn't really know what a lawyer did. Do you know why you wanted to be a lawyer? I thought that lawyers got to go into court and be really tough and uh, I pictured, you know, the television, like LA Law was the big law drama on TV at the time and, you know, I thought it was very glamorous, you know. They they drove fast cars. They always won their cases and they wore amazing clothes and there were some people of colour in there and I sort of liked to think, you know, um, I could work in there the court work, but um, I also felt like uh, you know to kill a mockingbird, reading that as a as a uh, younger sort of teen sort of got me to think about social justice and what you might do as law, but i didn 't really have any lawyers as role models. I didn't know what lawyers did. But uh, my father, he did get some work in the Aboriginal Legal Services or the early sort of um, organisation that was setting that up in Cairns. And he was like a liaison officer and helped out lawyers. And I remember he got very interested in the law. And one uh, when we moved to Can- Canberra from Cairns, and um, my parents got work in the government departments that were now um, having Indigenous policy. And um, he brought home these textbooks. I don't know why he chose to buy them, but there was... I remember one was a criminal law textbook and the other was a torts textbook, and they were so thick. Did he buy them for you? I think he did. And my sister, because my sister, Tony, also did law. I think he was trying to inspire us, but we did have books in the house a lot. My parents didn't go to university. Uh, They left school fairly early. But my father was always interested in reading and, yeah, these books were there and I didn't read the books. I, it's not a story of, oh, yeah, and I read
0: <laughs> from cover they're so to cover. They're, they're more like than they than were like doorstops. They were. but Engaging texts.
1: You know, there were stories in them and we were always such a storytelling family. I come from a very storytelling tradition and I really engaged with stories. And the case studies in the book, you know, the cases were just stories. Yeah. And I remember reading in the Torts book that very first one on um, its, um, you know, one where the snail is in the bottle. It's oh,
0: I of, remember that. Yeah,
1: on the smoke, smoke, carbolic smoke ball um, case. And, um, yeah, just things like that. And they were little stories. And, you know, the other early sort of English cases like i could relate to them as stories and and that's how he told them to me
0: wow okay so you're in canberra you you you've you, your father your parents are, are interested in sparking and encouraging your already present desire that's come from watching la law i do love that right like you clearly <laughs> have this sort of animation to do something strong based out of your experience so what do you do
1: well, I was very blessed to have the benefit of the Aboriginal education programs that were developed at that time. So we only had a few Indigenous people that had gone to university and completed their degrees. And in law, I remember there was a woman called Pat Shane, who is a Kuku Yalundji woman. She's from Cairns too. And she finished her law degree, I think, I think she was the first actually mm. to finish her degree and she went to uh, university in Sydney and I just remember because my parents knew her they would talk about her and she went on to become a barrister she led um, a government department then she ended up being a magistrate for many years and yeah just people like that had gone through it, but there weren't many of us. So I got to go to law school at a time where they were still developing the Indigenous programs at universities. We didn't have a pre-law program. I have an older sister called Tony, and she really, uh, she's only a year ahead of me. She was already there, and I went to be with her. We were very close. And yeah, I went to University of New South Wales. They had an Indigenous education program and I started at the law school and there was probably about four of us at the law school then. And yeah, it was a good start.
0: But how did it go?
1: Well, it didn't go too well. Um, I really was grappling with that issue of how a black woman would fit into a profession that at the time was perceived by me to be very white, middle class and male. And it was reflected to me uh, that way. It was struggling through the course because there was that being told how the law imposed on Indigenous people, I mean. There was uh, the time when I was sitting there in the property and equity class, we were reading all the you know foundational property uh, law cases and they were justifying the taking of the country to me and it was the doctrine of terra nullius that was being reinforced in the legal cases of that time because I was going to school there pre the Mabo case, which recognised native title. And for me, that was like, I don't get it. It's really hard. I feel like the law is just justifying a position and I I just don't see how I can be a part of it. Plus, you know, the criminal law was just seeing how that played out and, you know, imposing on Indigenous people for me. I thought it was a very criminal injustice system. And I had done a summer clerkship one summer trying to fit in, but, you know, I went with the solicitors into the courts and it was, you know, a criminal case that was, you know, they're hearing all these Cases at the time in the mentions, and then there the judge mistakes me as a defendant. And I just thought, like, well, you know, are you going to be the only black woman in a court and people are going to think that you're the defendant? You know, I guess this was before, um, you know, Pat O'Shane was really, you know, in the courts as a magistrate and became better known that. And today we've got, you know, much more Indigenous. People who've been judges and magistrates, but for me, it was really like uh, it didn't. It made me not want to be in the law, and I felt like um, like I'd made the
0: wrong decision, and I dropped out. And so, what did you do in that after that? You left this space. I mean, it would have just been horrible. What you're describing is just. It's almost like that they were trying to in, create and internalise this system of col- colonisation into you in the law what did you do? I dropped out
1: and it was, I didn't think I'd go back. Uh, I got a job in the Aboriginal Arts Board of the Australia Council for the Arts and it was there that I learned more about the Cultural renaissance that was occurring in Australia at that time in the early 90s. We'd uh, just had the bicentenary um, and there were a lot of rights discussions moving out of that, but there was also this flourishing of culture. And I loved culture. You know, I remember my father being involved in working and my mother being involved in the arts with singing in the Torres Strait community. Uh, my father, you know, visiting rock art sites up in, the, in Cape York and, you know, they really got us involved there. So I was really into the arts and at that time we were having the first Aboriginal authors being on the bestseller list. We had the first international exhibitions occurring overseas of Aboriginal artists and the cultural infrastructure of Indigenous Arts was forming, like the first dance theatres, like Bangara Dance Theatre, the leading Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander dance uh, company in Australia. I mean, it's a leading Australian dance company. It's a leading global... It's a leading global company and it was forming then. And there was just... um, you know, things happening in Indigenous music. And I really wanted to work in that area. I was so excited it. sounds like by it was it. nurturing in a way too. I loved it. I felt I'd come home. I mean, I, I was really engaged in that arts community and they supported me to uh, really um, understand my culture and my identity and I felt then... Uh, more comfortable to explore this notion of the law because what I was hearing from them was that copyright laws did not protect their rights and interests and the need for them to protect their cultural heritage from being appropriated and all the appropriation that was occurring in the arts, like art being copied on tea towels without uh, people asking permission, you know, people copying styles, um,
0: people putting things in films. Stealing, really. It's like Stealing but it's not just stealing someone's bag, stealing someone's culture and identity.
1: And the sort of things was that people still treated it as that art belongs to everyone. It was something that you could just pick up and use for your own commercial ends. And they were bastardising the versions that they were putting out there. And it was really disrespectful and disheartening for the Aboriginal people that I was coming into contact with when I moved in that community. And it became a really big issue. And um, yeah, I decided to go back to law and focus on Indigenous intellectual property.
0: Boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, But also I know that Mabo happened around this time. What impact did that decision have on yeah, you? Yeah, that was another thing because, you know, I,
1: even though I had that idea, still feeling a little bit dubious about how I would do it. And, you know, that's a very big thing to put on yourself. Or you? There's no one doing it. And I watched the headlines unfold with the Mar- when the Marbo case was handed down and, you know, the overturning of terra nullius and because, you know, I had been so struck down by those cases in my property law classes and then seeing this, it was just uh, revolutionary in changing my mindset to seeing law as something that could be rights Focused for indigenous people instead of being imposed on them, so I said, we can use it as our spear now and forge the rights that we wanted because you know the story of Eddie Koiki Marbo is one where you know he stood up for his rights. It was a long journey. You know, he didn't believe the laws when they were being. someone told him, you do not own country, the laws um, deny you those rights. And he said, no, that can't be right. And took the case with his co-applicants. You know, a 10 year journey of running a case, which when it was handed down in 1992, he'd already passed away. You know, it took so much from him and his family, but it gave um, so much for, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Also for, um, you know, Australians, I love seeing uh, young kids do their school projects on him, you know, and talk about him as an absolute trailblazer in Australian history, which he totally is. But for me back in 1992 as a young woman, seeing those headlines just
0: sparked me to go back. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no more LA law was required. <laughs> oh, I know. And, uh, you know,
1: because I actually failed that property law class and I had to go back and do it post Marbo, and I loved it. You know, wow. I loved it. So you be,
0: did the before and I after of did. that?
1: Oh, wow. I did. And, you know, it was really cool to see um, the, um, the law lecturer do it. And I remember he had an accent and he would refer to Mr. Marbo as Mabo oh and that was all right. <laughs> I was too shy to tell him otherwise, but you know, it was just so good to hear that language
0: being used in the property law class. Yeah. Oh my, that's wow. <laughs> what an extraordinary transformation. And so you, you finish your law degree, you get through it. How do you then start to conceive of connecting the law as your spear when it comes to, to the cultural rights? Well,
1: yeah, this is the thing about finding your purpose. I was so focused and I got really good marks and there, therefore I got very good opportunities to get jobs. And I worked in a very big law firm at one point uh, in my first career. I also worked at a Indigenous advocacy organisation called the National Indigenous Arts Advocacy Association. And they had the charter of advancing these rights. They ran a leading copyright case at that time. It was called Milperu and Indofern. It was the carpets case, it was about um, inappropriate and unauthorized copies of Aboriginal artworks on carpets. And they were very, very important works of extremely senior Aboriginal artists and community people. And it was the stories on the carpets in their artwork were so pivotal to their cultural heritage and their belonging to country and they were just copied from educational art portfolios of national galleries or big government departments and the carpet makers, who were a Perth-based company, had basically took those catalogues and, uh, to Vietnam and told people to make the carpets and they were imported into Australia without... Um, you know, without any royalties or any permission of these artists. And obviously they were devastated when they found their culture was being walked on and took this case. So there I was just finishing law school and I was um, brought in to help out with that case with the solicitors and the barrister, who was a man called Colin Golvan, who had done a lot of those early copyright cases leading up to this One, the carpets case was the first successful judgment and it set precedent. It was very groundbreaking and just so inspiring for me to be amidst it all when I was working at that organisation.
0: A different kind of experience of the law than you'd had previously.
1: It was, and it was there that I met Aboriginal artists and people that really inspired me to do more in this. And um, she's passed on recently, but the, the great Dr. Marika was someone who really took me on board to understand more about uh, the culture, but also really encouraged me to work in this area. She and the barrister, Colin Golvan, were very big in trying to inspire me to say, yeah, yeah, we need someone to really advocate in this law. And, you know, I wanted to do it. I I really wanted to do it, but finding how I would do it. And um, when I was at the same time, I was moving to work in a very big law firm. We were doing, um, you know, law, intellectual property for the big company I wanted to work for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and advance these rights. And I was getting the message, it's not going to happen here.
0: Um, So I had to make the choice to move on from there. Wow. So... I want us to spend the rest of our podcast talking about how you do your work and what you then have created in the time since you went off on your own, in a sense, and created this extraordinary movement for Indigenous legal, legal rights around um, about cultural and intellectual property. Before we get into your groundbreaking True Tracks work... I want you to um, explain, if you can, to our listeners this concept of culture. Because, you know, I'm white and my perception of culture, I reckon, is 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 pretty narrow. Things that we might enjoy and uh, rites of passage and, and activity. But I, I'm absolutely certain it's remarkably different to your understanding of culture. I wonder, can you explain what culture means from an Australian Indigenous perspective?
1: Well, culture for... World Indigenous people is life, basically. It's all aspects of life. It encompasses the things we can see and touch to those things that we know and pass down through story and song and dance. But it's really Indigenous ways of knowing and relating to the world and that interconnectedness of culture. So culture is embodied in... Uh, The land and the waters and the skies, but also it includes each other, like how we relate to people through kinship systems and uh, those relationships are really important, but people aren't the centre of the world, it is interconnected with... Uh, plants and animals and the environment. So those relationships like uh, the the totems or um, the uh, looking after country comes in there. So it is expressed through things like, um, you know, the arts or identity, uh, just the way that people um, express their own um, Affiliations or connections. It's a common thing when Indigenous people meet. Where are you from? You know, who's mm. your mob? And we're just always trying to connect to country, to people, and to that ongoing obligation to keep that connection strong and to practice culture and to also... Um, have something to pass on to the next generations. And, you know, that's so important for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and for world indigenous people because of the fact that uh, through, you know, colonization, there has been just so much impact on that and the disruptions that that's caused. Uh, Those cultural uh, practices still continue, but in the face of colonisation, there's been a lot of destruction. And you know we point to the loss of languages in, in Australia or that a lot of languages are sleeping. And we're going through a point where that revitalisation of those languages is so important for Aboriginal people to reconnect. There are people having been moved around through just people move, being moved on when um, people who wanted the land moved Aboriginal people off the land, but also the stolen generation where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were taken away from their families, that sort of thing. The disruptions that occurred have been a real, um, a real heartache for Aboriginal people. So that cultural reclamation is so important. And you see uh, Article 31 of the UN declaration of the rights of Indigenous people really asserting Indigenous people's rights to own, protect, maintain and control their Indigenous uh, knowledge, their traditional cultural expression, that cultural heritage, because so much has happened. And I think that culture is really um, now, it is, it's actually the story of survival and r- revival and thriving where Indigenous people can uh, celebrate and reconnect and, yeah, just continue uh, cultural practice that has begun and continues since time immemorial. And in Australia, we have the world's oldest living cultures and that is just something to really celebrate.
0: Yeah, uh, what I hear is that if we bring only white eyes to an understanding of indigenous culture we we miss the 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 richness and the extraordinary knowledge that exists but we also sort of overlook the abuse that has happened from the de- the destruction of culture as well. But thank you for thank you for making <laughs> it clear, right? Setting the setting it straight. So, I mean, key to your work, Terry, is that you, you work on Indigenous cultural and intellectual property and you create and work on, on legal instruments that, that actually restitute and recognise um, Indigenous cultural and intellectual property. Can you explain to us what that means? Yes, well, Indigenous
1: cultural and intellectual property rights came from the 1990s, draft of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, but it's a term that we use in Australia to refer to Indigenous people's rights to their heritage, uh, tangible and intangible. So it includes knowledge, cultural expression. It includes documentation that embodies that, that has been done by other people, not Indigenous people. So things like old records, written reports and books and films and sound recordings. It includes the knowledge of country, knowledge of seasons, plants and animals, medicinal practices. It includes the land and seas and the waters. It includes sites, sacred sites as well. It includes the cultural objects, the so-called relics that have been collected and put in the world's museums and galleries, uh, from the, you know, coulomons to uh, possum skin cloaks to, you know, stones and it also includes the bones. The Indigenous ancestor remains a very sad story for Indigenous people where our ancestors' bones were collected for science and for curiosity and they are in university mu- museums all over the world. And it's not um, something that people really like to talk about, but for laying the spirits of our ancestors to rest, it's a really important... Ah, aspirational right for indigenous people and you know we have um the story of where people those names of those people are not known where they came from it's just total disrespect for them and so now as we return them it's it takes a lot of work but languages is in in this indigenous cultural and intellectual property um uh, categories as well Mentioned the story of the languages, and obviously people are much more uh, aware of the art being Indigenous cultural and intellectual property. But it includes, you know, bark paintings. It also includes public art. It includes photographs, and it also includes story, um, dance, and ceremony. So it's very all-encompassing. It's interrelated, and it's related to people, land. It's it's a living tradition. It's the cultural practice.
0: Yeah, and it's much bigger than, as important as art is, like a painting is, it's, it's not just that. I think that sometimes, uh, again, white eyes might see the idea of Indigenous cultural intellectual property and think of, the th- of things, you know, of objects, but actually it's, it's this living and breathing um, cultural existence that includes all of the treatment of Indigenous people, like bones or recordings. You know, Aboriginal people have been um, have been poked and prodded, and and stuff taken from them over as, for as long as colonialism has existed. So, so you came up with a different, like a way of being able to. Um, think about the recognition of intellectual, cultural, and intellectual property called the True Tracks Framework. I wonder if you can tell us, tell us firstly where you, where you got the idea, the name from, and then what it is, because it's a beautiful story. Well, you know, it it was daunting when I
1: finished my law degree and I started practicing in this area because everyone was saying, well, she's going to teach us about the law and run all these cases against the people who have stolen our art or our intellectual property. But it was just such a complex and just massive problem appropriation was rife and you know we mentioned the arts the exploitation there but you know research is an extractive industry for indigenous people and those uh, knowledge systems um, uh, people coming in and taking the knowledge and the resources from country so you know I started off having that real focus in the arts and I would get invited to go to Aboriginal uh, communities and forums and speak about my work and try and, you know, tell people about the law. And I got invited to go back to Cairns, which is where I um, was born. And, you know, there was that eight-year-old invisible girl who was told in school that she was not going to amount to much. And, you know, I definitely had all those triggers going on from that community. And I was invited back there from the uh, the Aboriginal community Um, invited me to give this workshop and I did and artists came and they uh, wanted to bring in the media, the organisation that I was working with and so there was, you know, the journalists came and someone, um, you know, wrote it up and I thought, oh, they're just going to talk about, you know, the message of don't rip off artists or what have you but, you know, I was up there for a, a couple of days and then I was heading up to the Torres Strait but I was staying at a hotel and that morning I was heading to the Torres Strait. But I opened up the door and, you know, the papers were on the floor when you walk out. And there I was on the cover (laughs) of this paper and the headline said, Cultural Crusader. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, who's going to see this? It's so embarrassing. Um, It was really early in the morning. And I was just so pleased to be catching a plane from Cairns to the Torres Strait. It's about, you know, a two-hour plane ride. And I ducked out of the hotel (laughs) into the airport. And when I was getting on the plane, there's, you know, um, walking through the plane, I looked, the air hostess had just handed everyone the paper. (laughs) And my face was, like, mirrored as I walked down the aisles. And I was like heightenedly embarrassed and I sort of slunk down into my seat and next to me there was this Aboriginal, um, sorry, Torres Strait Islander woman there was this Torres Strait Islander woman, and she said, "Ah, oh, bub, that's you on the cover," and I was just going like, "Oh no!" And she's going, "You're going to um, really help. This is great. You know, you're going to help solve this problem." And I said to her, I "said oh, Look, I'm only new, and it's so massive." And I started to talk like that, and she said, "No, no, you listen. You just have to keep your tracks true, and people will follow." And that just really sort of Made me settle because I thought if I just start with doing the work, people will follow. And it really made me think more strategically. It's not a fight that we were going to do one case after the other. It needed a shift in a mindset and to get people to understand it and to build big frameworks. And once that would happen, you'd get the willingness of people to want to understand it. And it was a real shift for me in my early career. The True Tracks Framework, I I didn't call it that for, for much longer, but I started to write about it. I was able to, I had an opportunity, When I was at a law firm called Michael Frankel and Company, we won a tender for the writing of a report called Our Culture, Our Future. So that enabled me to travel all over and think about this in depth. And yeah, I developed this report and then just understood the rights and then wrote the framework. Um, I've always written a lot about it. I understood that using the pen to articulate Indigenous viewpoints was a very strong thing to do. And, you know, I just wrote lots of papers and reports And then, you know, the framework came about uh, as a result of that.
0: And so, you know, people need to read your book, which is like the ultimate writing about it, right, which is called True Tracks and and is an an exposition of both the framework and its application to basically all the different forms of, of Indigenous culture that you've described. Like you go through... Every single example, it's, its so brilliantly, ruthlessly brilliant. But I wonder if you want to just highlight. You know, there's a series of sort of elements to the to the framework, steps, things that that people need to to be cautious of and conscious of in in being true. Do you want to just run through some of those? Um, Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Can I also say, um, I think the context is, is, you know, the international work that was being done on this. And, um, you know, people were looking for new laws. uh, And at an international level, we had the World Intellectual Property Organization, you know, forums talking about how this is a global problem could be solved by new laws. And it was just never, ever, Coming about. We still do not have those global laws. So it was through those international rights movements, you know, I was observing them and the gaps in the law. And by then, I had started up my own practice. I have had my own law firm 22 years now. And people were coming to me and I was learning from those cases and the work that I got to do as a lawyer for many years. So, the framework sprung out of that. And the idea was, to, um, what, we can't, what I came up with was 10 principles. So, they are not sequential, they interrelate, but they are the Things that I get people to think about when they're wanting to engage or use. Uh, Indigenous cultural and intellectual property,
0: and what I think is really interesting is it's almost like you're prefiguring what an international legal system should be, right? Like you were saying, these are the ethical principles that one should use, and we don't have an international framework that's perfect. So let's work with individual companies and places to create the framework that should be. That's exactly it. And
1: I grew tired of call those calls for international law. I thought, let's do this. We can do it ourselves. <laughs> and do it in a way that was clear and understood. So it starts off very simply with respect and recognising that Indigenous people have that right to culture and in an IP system, which may render it in the public domain because let's say it's old rock art, there's, it might um, detail a very important cultural uh, symbol or spirit or, um, you know, image for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and that's part of their culture. But rock art isn't protected by copyright because it's really old. You don't know who the author is. All of those sort of fundamental elements to get copyright aren't there in that situation. So um, respect is important. Two is self-determination, just having Indigenous people make the decision. Three is consent and consultation making sure that they understand what um, the use is being made and the standard is free prior informed consent and you got to think about how you document that these days because the use um, maybe for a long time and relationships change it's no it's not just good to have an implied or oral consent four is interpretation thinking about the voice and the lens Uh, in the past so much of indigenous culture has been written up without any regard for that and told through a very white eurocentric lens and then the fifth one is uh, cultural integrity um, making sure that that's guarded don't uh, mix it up um, and uh, have regard for that context of culture the next one is secrecy and privacy, making sure that anything sacred, secret shouldn't be made public and the privacy of individuals. Then there is the uh, attribution point, making sure Indigenous people are attributed for that. No artists, unknowns, no unprovenance things, name the people in their community. Obviously, the next one, benefit sharing. Indigenous people have the right to be benefiting commercially. And also, if there are non-monetary benefits, that as well. The next one is continuing cultures, thinking about how over time you go back if it's used again, but also how Indigenous people might know and link into the uses that you've made, giving them copies or contributing to a local keeping place might be an example of that. The next one is just recognition and protection, and that's looking at how laws policies and contracts can um, really be used in the gaps of the law and we're seeing that now where there are clauses within these license agreements now that we're drafting um, for you know films or uh, arts projects or data agreements where people are going in and asking indigenous people can you know tell us about the country can we do research there there are clauses in contracts that say what happens for the protection of indigenous cultural and intellectual
0: property See, it's straightforward should be an international agreement <laughs> but in, in the absence of that it is already a framework that's used across australia because because of people voluntarily working with people like you to be able to to make that operative in their organisation?
1: I think it's a useful, educate, like you said, the checklist. And I love the way you explained it as a, you know, it's almost like a precursor to how a law might work and what you do in that gap of the law. I think it's really good. It's had a lot of goodwill. But what's also been a major factor for it becoming um, so well known is that we have bodies like the Australia Council for the Arts now making it a condition of their funding as they feel... As they fund projects in the arts or organisations that you know, contribute to the vibrant arts community in Australia, they are saying you must follow these protocols uh, as part of your obligations um, of the grant funding.
0: So I'm interested just to apply it to a slightly different area, which is the question of research. So that's another space in which um, Indigenous people have been involved in lots of research, most of it pretty awful, over the last few hundred years. And the the ICIP, as you discuss in True Tracks, can help us reimagine how we do research with uh, Indigenous communities. Tell tell us a little bit about how, how this work can help improve how we might conduct research with with not on indigenous communities
1: well I feel like it gets you to think about that deeper connection to the subject matter that you're trying to work with so even that um, that you've got to think about the lens that you're bringing to the to the research and you know this is an area that has a lot of distrust from the history of You know, extraction and misappropriation, and the way that uh, researchers have written up culture and Indigenous people have felt it's not—it's not right. It's um, exploitative. So, the true tracks principles, if you start to engage with them, get you to think about um, how you're going to give life to these wider principles, than just approaching it as someone who's. Going to do research on a subject and write it up from a lens that they see from their viewpoint. So automatically, you're asked to shift that and try and think of what ways can you let those indigenous perspectives in, but indigenous people in in the decision maker, in the in decision making. And what I find with it, um, using it myself and seeing other people use it, is that you often, um, yeah, you might find things that you might not have already envisaged. I think that's always a gift in research because you don't want to ha- always start it with um, the results already sorted. That's not Well, what that's not do. really research, is it? It's like opinion writing. <laughs> yes, but when you think about it, that's often what gets yeah. done because you th- think about that way to back your uh, hypothesis or theory. So this deeper research is getting you to think of... Um, culture is living. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because research and even just the Western knowledge system and the intellectual property law system focuses on outcomes. And we think of how something might end up as a written report or something as an embodiment of knowledge or cultural practice or, you know, someone's critique of it. But, it's actually the practice of culture that becomes important for Indigenous people when they share stories for research or knowledge for stories. And Indigenous people in Australia and, you know, worldwide are the most researched people in the world and they give so much of themselves to that. But, um, you know, for people to think about how that piece of work that they're producing interacts with those people and their culture and their future descendants, um, it becomes a much more bigger picture to think about. And the True Tracks um, protocols take people through that. So you're moving from a gaze that I would describe as a very colonial gaze, a very imposed gaze, to one that's much more inclusive and one that lets a voice in. And, you know, that hasn't been, you know, it wasn't the system that I got taught with when I studied, that can be confronting for a lot of people. I think, I just, do I have to do it? I think science is grappling with that now as Indigenous voices and observations and traditional knowledge practices. Well, I see them as Indigenous science, but Western science may grapple with that because um, we haven't had that recognition through a rights perspective. And it's it just needs to to change. So we let these viewpoints in where we're becoming much more relational and the interconnectedness of it. And I think that that can bring about greater uh, insights that we will tap into and you know that will be such a shift in the in, it is a shift in the way things things are done where we're seeing, you know, these deeper situational awarenesses of the world and people in it and connectedness. And obviously, we're seeing much more Indigenous people being empowered to do the research and get involved in the research and and be the research leaders and the ones that are, you know, um, trailblazing innovation in their culture and um, just love seeing that happen.
0: And, and what I hear is that actually it's really... S- that all those ideas, that transformation is really symbolised in the, in the phrase true tracks. Like true, true tracks was both sort of a really – there was a lot of humility. I don't know exactly where we're going, but as long as we stick onto a process that's true, we'll get there – and that we're going to commit to a process, that kind of research that has a humility that we don't know all the answers that actually we need to discover knowledge together. And that the process of research is as important, if not more important than the sort of book at the end, that actually how we work with communities is that's how we should be judging the merits of our of, of our knowledge creation. Because if we extract and we injure in the process of creating knowledge, then we would create more harm than good. But if we can have these true tracks, like if we can commit to this this process of working with this relational process, then then that is that's that's the guide, that's the guide for how, for a better form of research. Yeah, that's, that's it. And it, it
1: is, um, it is about keeping true. Uh, I think that when I was trying to change the laws, and spent time trying to write these draft laws, people always pointed to the complexities. I guess they still do. You know, there's things like, I don't know who are the right people to speak to. How do I get in contact? How do I get consent from everybody? Uh, There's so much that's complex in this area and it has been due to the historical sort of rights denial that has occurred, but also, um, yeah, it is complex. Intellectual property laws are complex, but if we keep to the commitment, we can work it out. And I think, you know, dispute resolution um, is, um, you know, the legal system will look to, all the cases give us precedent and therefore we use that to work out how we're going to go in the next given situation. It's very adversarial. But um, for this area with the protocols, We are learning as we move along, following these framework practice points in all areas from research to uh, art, design, engineering, tech filmmaking. The protocols are so flexible to be used in any industry Mm. that interfaces with Indigenous knowledge systems. And as we grow and learn more, it just becomes a more heightened practice. And yeah, I guess you're right, that true tracks. I didn't really think think about it too deeply, but I just wanted to give people a pathway. I wanted to give Indigenous people more rights, but it's certainly... um, Yeah, it sets for me the way that in the spirit of how I wanted to change the law, you know, a young kid and wanting to strive for social justice and shifts that would make Aboriginal kids feel more connected to their culture, which, you know, I didn't feel. I thought that that could be a way that, um, yeah, sets up something that we can all do not just run it through the courts because quite frankly a lot of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people can't take matters to the court because we can't fund it and so True Tracks was that holistic all-encompassing framework that we could assert and get people on board and it would create a movement for change.
0: Yeah and so just one other question, um, you know. One, you know, you've mentioned all these different disciplines of and how this this true, the true tracks principles can apply. I wonder if you want to just touch on a form of research that I think is interesting, which is place based research. There's a lot of place based research. Everyone's interested in place and locality. You know, from an indigenous perspective, that's about country. How does the concept of country and true tracks and and this kind and your approach um, help us, I guess, reimagine um, and and strengthen an understanding of place-based research, do you think?
1: Yeah, the reimagining of place has been um, occurring in Australia so strongly recently and uh, it is leading into the use of knowledge of place, uh, the deeper histories that indigenous people and the connections that they have with place. You know, the, um, the a lot of our landscapes have been, and, you know, in urban areas, they have been colonized. And, you know, it's only been for 200 years or, you know, less that those spaces have been there. So what I see that is the reconnection with that country being able to speak. So it's it's not even indigenous people speaking for it it's like allowing country to speak because the country uh indigenous people that don't really own the country the country owns us and it's the way that we allow country to express itself and what it needs so we're seeing things like reconnection to the song lines the stories of how that country came to be what it means the language names the language of that country uh, that was spoken on it for thousands and thousands of ye- years. That language might include not just the spoken words that humans use to communicate, but it might include the language of the landscape and the design of the actual country through its topography through you know waterways or um, sands, hills, mountains. All of that is now coming more into line. Let the country speak. And, you know, we're at an era now where, you know, rivers are having personalities. It's great to (laughs) see that. It's a shift from a human-centric notion to that um, we are part of uh, the holistic nature of country. So, um, you know, people might be thinking about what were the plants that were in this space, you know, not so long ago really, um, I think the bushfires really opened up people's uh, ideas to. I mean, the devastation that colonial management of country has had on the landscape, and you know, people were more open to indigenous knowledge systems like the cultural fire management practices. But it also let people think about, well, you know, fire management, the country, uh, the the plants that grew after, you know, the fire conditions on country were. You know, some of them were plants that had not been seen before because of the way that the land had been managed. So we're seeing much more replanning of, you know, those Indigenous plants, people wanting to know. It's great to see, you know, even in urban areas like um, Indigenous um, nurseries, having um, spaces where people really want to do that. But I think the design of country and and place is becoming um, much important in terms of, yes, the past but how are we going to use these spaces to the future as well in a way that's really going to let country be on it? but it's also about our, you know, again, our relationship with them and, you know, so much of it is um, going to need um, that Indigenous... Perspective, but it's also, you know, for future generations of Australia, it's something that we will all benefit from. So, um, yeah, just that holistic nature of country, we want to be able to, um, yeah, see that move to spaces that touch our spirit. And I think that, you know, Indigenous people have this real deep connection to country, and, you know, we can walk country and, you know, feel the spirit of our ancestors and the need to really want to interact with it for our uh, future descendants. But I think all Australians want to have that feeling and that connection with place. And it's it's a really good way to start with, yeah, following those true tracks to how we can work together.
0: Awesome. So here's my final reflective question, right? So we're in another moment now, right? We're at the end of, you know, 2022, 2023 is going to be a time of thinking about voice and treaty and truth right? We've got another big national discussion where finally we're having some more uh, talk about more serious reconciliation, relationship, restoration of Indigenous rights and power. When you think of that big discussion and you think of of the work that you do in terms of of true tracks and this kind of process of recognition of Indigenous culture, like what do you make of this moment and what are your hopes? It is such an opportunity
1: for Australians and We should really embrace it. Um, It is an opportunity to, well, the voice to the parliament and the Uluru Statement is really just that opportunity uh, for the country to um, come together and it's including Indigenous voices in things that are about them. And it is not about a top-down approach to solutions. It's, it's working together. And it is from the heart. And it is, you know, a good place to start. And I think Australians should feel that it's not just about this generation. What do we make a call for the future generations? Um, and to be able to do that, because this is a once in a century opportunity and once in a lifetime opportunity. It, it really is bringing together the fact that, you know, that Indigenous people have had been voiceless and bringing into those decisions. The Uluru Statement also calls for a um, makarata you know, a treaty and to put that down in some Form that we can, you know, have a foundational document. That um, whether it's treaty or treaties, we have four states of the country that are moving into treaty status, and they know the importance of this. It's it's not just symbolism. That's where you're going to get people saying, "Well, we commit to this." And um, it it will be it will be really important. It'll deal with things like issues to do with land management, and you know the indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights will be in there it'll deal with things like that but it'll it'll be able to set that relationship that we need it's it's a fundamental thing of all human groups that we have you know we interact as um, with each other there are contracts that we all have sometimes they're not very clear and they have to you know be really understood and treaties and the the statement are really setting that. So I see that as um, being really important. And then, you know, the truth telling, the other element there. I think we have come to a point in this Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights where people are asserting rights because there's been a denial of the fact that there have been contributions of Indigenous knowledge to um, things that have been exploited. So the truth telling will be very important for Um, Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights but again um, it will take away that underlying sort of silence and shame that underlies a lot of Australian society and it's you know it is in our research and our schools and in our knowledge in our western you know, knowledge systems. And we need to change that and bring forth the new ideas, the new innovation, the new dreaming story that is going to be our shared stories.
0: I can't wait for it. And I also can't wait for watching your leadership in that space. I'm sure you'll be part of it as, we, as it unfolds. Terry, thank you for joining us on Changemakers. Thank you so much, Amanda. I really enjoyed it. So did I. <laughs> thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. To find out more about True Tracks and Terry Janke's work, you can read her book, True Tracks, published by UNSW Press. Changemakers' digital producer is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wilbra. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories.